Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey. 
Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I am your host, Liv, here with another wonderful conversation episode. Today's episode is with Laura Jenkinson-Brown, who runs Greek Myth Comics, which is an absolutely badass comic series from everything from the full comic of the Odyssey and the Iliad to like buildable play sets of the Labyrinth and Theseus and the Minotaur. Honestly, her work is incredibly cool and we have become friends over the internet over the past few months. Um, It's really fun. We had such a fun conversation that it became one of those ones that uh, got a little off the rails in the best way imaginable, in my opinion. We set out to talk about the Homeric heroes. So specifically to go through heroes from the Iliad, Odyssey, and then the Aeneid, even though obviously that's not Homeric, but you know, it's close enough. We set out to talk about some of those heroes, their flaws, their stories, just everything about them, uh, because Homeric heroes are both of our thing. We did begin by intending to kind of rank them or rate them in some way, which then sort of uh, dropped off and we forgot to finish it because we ended up talking for over two hours and I've drilled it down to an hour and a bit long episode for you all. Uh, But it really was so much fun, obviously, towards the end when we were talking about who was the least ideal hero, we did end up covering Theseus because truly, how could we not. I am me after all, and I now have a type, and that type is just reasons for me to rail on Theseus for how horrifically bad he is. But isn't it fun? Oh my gosh. Anyway, this was such a fun episode. It was recorded uh, a few months ago now, so just sort of take that into account in terms of what we talk about. Uh, I'm considering releasing a bonus episode with Laura as well, uh, with more of the things we talked about, because she is a secondary school teacher in the UK. And some of those little bits and pieces were really fascinating. As it is, we do talk a little bit about what it's like to teach classics and ancient history to secondary school students, because that in itself is so cool to me. And I'm deeply jealous of anyone who gets to learn that much about the ancient world that early in their life. Utterly fascinating conversation with Laura. She's just so much fun. It was so much fun. Uh, As I say so often with these conversation episodes, I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed recording it. I truly just love to be able to ramble on about the heroes in this way and just release it all to you guys. Uh, Primarily, we did talk about Achilles, Odysseus, and Aeneas, the sort of stars of the show for each of the three epics. But of course, everyone gets touched upon in their own way. And so does the movie Troy, because how could we not? You should absolutely check out everything that Laura does. You can find her on Twitter at Greek Myth Comics, that's comics with an X, as well as GreekMythComics.com and on Instagram under the same. There is so much, such incredible content, especially if you are a teacher, uh, because she does have all of this content available for teachers to help in the classrooms, for them to use in their classrooms, for supplementary material. Um, there's videos and comments and all of this stuff. It's really incredible, all the work that she's put into this, all with the intention of helping teachers teach students about the ancient world and these epics specifically. So you should absolutely check out everything Laura does. She is awesome and just so much fun. Conversations, the most and least epic 
of the Epic Heroes with Laura Jenkinson Brown of Greek Myth Comics. So thank you so much for for coming on to talk about heroes today. And yes, why don't you give us a little rundown on you? Oh, thank you for having me. Um, Yeah, so kind of unlike most of your guests, I don't have a book or a doctorate, but I do have nearly 15 years secondary school teaching experience. Um, And basically, I'm a massive nerd because I don't really have a full degree in classics either. I just sort of blagged my way into teaching it and English literature and never really looked back. And um, yeah, so I'm mostly therefore kind of self-taught, but self-taught like since I could read and we went to libraries every week and all the Greek myth books were clearly the most fascinating. And also living in London, uh, we were able to go to all the museums and I went to the British Museum a lot. I made friends with a mummy in the Egyptian section that also had red hair and was my only other red haired friend. (laughs) <laughs> um, did not know that was part of the embalming process, but still didn't matter to me. <laughs> details, Where, details, details, details. Yeah, I went and talked to Ginger <laughs> all the time. And um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, so um, yeah, very nerdy altogether. And just, I, I have this need to to teach the reasoning behind everything and, and try and explain things because kids always ask fantastic questions. So it's always kind of keeps me on my toes and um, Greek myths really keep you on your toes when you're teaching because they're really rude. And <laughs> I love that, but also it gets really boring having to say the word rape to 14 year olds, like every, every few minutes in some, some lessons. Yeah, That's so fascinating. So, I mean, I, for one, I feel so similarly, similarly to just being a pretty massive self-taught nerd. Like I have a classics degree, but it was almost 10 years ago and I didn't intend for it to be a career at all. So I took it seriously, but I didn't take it that seriously. I just was like, this is fun. Um, And then, yeah, since then it's kind of like, certainly before then too, like there's a reason I got, I went into classics, but it's just like, I mean, the last four years of my podcast have been like self-taught, figure all this stuff out. And I've gotten to that point too, where all I want to do is to be able to like, answer questions that people aren't really asking me which means I then just like ramble and ramble and ramble because I have like these theoretical questions that I'm answering (laughs) in a single episode and I but so do you teach classics to high school students yeah um so I teach uh so I suppose UK school system I'm a secondary school teacher so I get them aged 11 and uh it's year seven or in my school it's uh first year and they have Latin for first year, which is really great because it's not in enough schools anymore. I was really lucky enough to do Latin in a, um, a non-private school in the UK, a state school. And um, it was very limited numbers could do it. And we did it as like a before and after school additional session. And it kind of changed my life, really. I'd never have had that um, that influence. We didn't get to do Greek and I still have absolutely no Greek because I find um, symbols and numbers really really difficult and I find Greek really really hard I'm trying I've been trying for a very long time I'm trying to I get it <laughs> but then uh in second and third year they either do Latin or they start doing classical civilizations um which is which is great because again loads of schools don't even have this 
at, at key stage three, the, this level, or at GCSE then, which is when they're 15, 16, and that's an exam that they can do. So I, I'm able to write my own course, which is just fab. So we sort of, I've got the Minoans in there as much yeah. as we have. And I kind of made it a critical thinking course as well. So you can question by looking at um, artifacts, what they could tell us about these peoples. And then we move on to sort of more more well, the, the Mycenaeans and Troy and whether it was real. And you talk about Schliemann, as my, <laughs> my, my kids know, shaking their fists, Schliemann. That's the great thing. I'm really glad they come away with <laughs> third year. And then, and then the GCSE, um, which is a proper exam, and they learn for two years. And that gives them a really good um, idea about both Greece and Rome. And it's now taught kind of comparatively. You look at the Greek side of things and the Roman side of things. So you start off with the gods, which is a great way in, because by learning about them, you start to know about the, the culture and what was important to these people and then how it's different between the Greeks and Romans. And then that feeds into the other sort of aspects of culture. But then... And, for their second year, I get to teach them about the Mycenaeans again, and we get to read the Odyssey. So I'm very happy. But no, and then, uh, so for sixth form, I teach uh, ancient history now instead of classical civilization. Mm. I used to, be able to just rock up and we would just read the Aeneid for like six months. And it was wonderful. And before that, we'd read the Iliad for six months. And it would also be wonderful. And then we can compare them. And now I, I'm teaching the fall of the Republic and the the, the, the Julio-Claudians, which is great. Mm. But it's more history than literature. And I'm a literature nerd. So it's mm-hmm. tough. Um, but it is fun and wild in some cases. Very, very wild indeed, that that, that period of history. But I I, yeah. I just, I I really prefer my epic heroes. Because for 10 years, I would, I would like, right, so GCSE, Odyssey, then A-level, Iliad, then second year of A-level, Aeneid. And some days it would literally be Iliad, Odyssey, Aeneid. And that was my day. It was bliss. Oh, That is so, I'm so jealous. Like if my listeners could see my face right now, it's just like <laughs> awe of, I mean, of being able to teach that, but also just being taught it in school. But yeah, it's just so fascinating to me that that's something that you can like learn in high school and have such a good grounding that early. My school's quite special. I have worked there a really long time and I, I do love it there. And it's, it is a private school, so it's a, it's a paid for school. Um, and sadly, a lot of the classics jobs are there, but there's lots, there's a really big push to get classics in back into a lot of the, the uh, a lot more schools. It used to be such a, a great tradition of it in, in England and Wales. Mm-hmm. And there are these great charities like Classics for All and um, Advocating Classics Education that I've done um, some talks for and shared resources for who were really trying to push that and and there's lots more uh, teachers in other departments as well like history who are now using their history skills to bring classics into the classroom and I'm working with um, the Cambridge School Classics Project who made the the Cambridge Latin course Caecilius Est in Horto which <laughs> might ring bells for people and um, been working with them and some uh, this lovely archaeologist uh, called Dr Sophie Hay and uh, uh, to create this teaching course about Pompeii pre-eruption so that history mm. teachers can bring classics in so it's, it's really exciting time right now classics are becoming really really popular again sometimes for the wrong reasons but a lot of the times (laughs) for the right reasons and actually I think a lot of those wrong reasons are probably because it hasn't been in schools so much and people are getting the wrong idea about it later on instead of maybe actually having it taught carefully and gently by a capable pair of hands a teacher in a school so hopefully that you know may nip that in the bud going forward. I do want to mention that you're an illustrator who does oh, yeah. the incredible Greek myth comics. 
which is certainly how like you and I connected. <laughs> yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like wait, there's this yeah. like huge thing that you do. I know. Oh, <laughs> so I started. Um, I challenged a student of mine, Parham Sruchian, to draw because he wanted to become an illustrator, and he was in my classics class, and he ha- he didn't have a portfolio, and my my. Um, no, sorry, he wants to be an animator. And my brother's an animator and I'd seen, you know, what he had to do. So I said, right, you've got to make a portfolio. I've been wanting to draw for a while. I'll draw too. And we've been drawing Stickman. He do this really cool Stickman version of the Aristea. So when a hero goes on their killing spree, because I'd said in class, I want you to make a visual representation of this. And then I thought, well, that was great. And they all remembered it brilliantly after this. So I'll I'll start making visual representations of other things that they're not sure about. So I made some little individual comics. And then that turned into basically drawing the Odyssey as a very detailed didactic comic for my GCSE students who were really struggling to remember all the details. And then that just turned into me drawing till like 3 a.m. every night that I didn't have marking and then bring it into school and my hand being in bandages because I couldn't move my wrist and and, um, and just pumping out as much as possible. And then that's turned into randomly actually being paid to be an archaeological illustrator and also just draw my really cute characters with no faces, which should be kind of freaky and scary to some, but but aren't. And I love that because they're not my characters. They're mythological characters that everyone is so familiar with and I can't like pick a face to, to give them. But mm-hmm. it's really nice to be able to focus on um, instead the gestures and the, 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 the body language of the characters, like on the, the original pottery where they didn't go into a lot of detail on the faces and they're almost cartoons in themselves um but also as well with the archaeological characters we don't know exactly what they looked like so that kind of work but then my my work comes back to me and the kids have drawn the faces in and they've decided what they look like which is lovely as well but it's it's a it's I think sometimes you can get really bogged down in that sort of detail um and when you're trying to be educational maybe it's not necessary and mm-hmm. it can often be as well just a bit more accessible to not necessarily have to read a person's facial expression. So if you take out the face altogether and they just have the body language in the simplest stickman form, um, and that just seems to have, have become really popular. And I seem to get hits from schools and colleges and universities every day and kids have their homework to look at this page on Greek myth comics and all the videos on, on YouTube, which is fantastic. So I, I, I've always kind of thought, Oh no, I've sold out. I'm teaching at a private school. Um, but actually this way I'm teaching everywhere, which is really nice. And then I could also yeah. give my resources to other teachers, but I've got about 50 teachers using my class resources at the moment to try and get classics into some more schools too. And some of them are my, uh, not actually drawn ones but it's just it's just really nice because it it fulfills my need to explain everything all the time to everybody (laughs) so I'm I'm very fond of all of the epic heroes no matter what people say about them or think about them and I uh, I had a long hard think about this and I, I mean I've listened to quite a few episodes and I was skipping through going oh wait I should listen to your episodes on Odysseus and and Achilles and oh no wait you don't have them because it's a feminist podcast obviously and they they are they in a way they are kind of they are footnoted in a lot of episodes and they are mentioned and you've also done your readings of the Iliad and, and the Odyssey which is really cool 
So I tried to think of them from a, a female perspective because mm. that is a, a, just such an interesting way um, of looking at these um, these texts. And there's been so much fantastic uh, sort of classical reception novels and retellings lately, uh, as some of your guests as well have done some really beautiful work. So I was trying to to think about them from from a female perspective or the females in the text. Well, and it's interesting that, that you say that you say it like that because I guess yeah I mean I haven't done episodes on these heroes specifically and I've never really thought about it that way but it's just because I've always focused on the narrative surrounding them so because they are the heroes of epic they're just in the epics but they get so much attention anyway and that's I rather like the point of your podcast it doesn't always focus on the people who've always already had the attention which is mostly the men. Yeah, exactly. I definitely <laughs> try to to give women their due or if I'm unable to because of the sources to at least criticize the men. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's do a some criticism. About. I have quite a, a well, people say I'm left field coming in this way, but I think Achilles is actually quite a romantic. Okay. I will now prove myself. So when you say someone is such a romantic, they have ideals and they they maybe fall in love quite easily and they're very passionate about their friends and their lovers and they Mm -hmm. will do anything for the people that they adore, uh, like Patroclus. Um, I mean, he obviously completely adores Patroclus. I think it's book nine when he does this incredibly shouty reply to Odysseus and that, no, I'm not going to come back and fight for Agamemnon, who I've completely seen through you. And he... He's, he's, Patroclus has been there sitting with him, waiting for, uh, there's a, one of my favorite lines, I think it's the beginning of that book, where um, Achilles was sitting, eating his heart out, playing his lyre, and Patroclus was patiently waiting for him to finish. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he's like, Patroclus, our friends are here, make some food. So he's, Patroclus is dutifully looking after everyone. Um, he's almost like a little kept man. He's not really allowed to fight. But then when he's doing his very shouty reply, Achilles says, and Agamemnon has taken my love from me, the woman I wanted to make my wife. And we're like, whoa, that's not what was happening. But he makes it sound as if it is. And so it, it it's like, are you actually really upset about this? Because he is so very, very angry. A lot of that sounds like very off the cuff, emotional response, not thinking about it. Or is he very calculatedly saying this to make them feel worse? that Mm -hmm. she's been taken from him. So that's quite interesting. But then by the end of the speech, he's saying, fine, I'm going to go home and my dad's going to pick me a wife and I'm going to go off with them. Like he's forgotten about her already. Um, Although again, that could be because Agamemnon has said, you can marry my daughter. Um, And I'd love to know how much of that anger is based on the idea that he was potentially used as a lure to bring Iphigenia mm. to, to Aulis to have her sacrifice. You know, you can marry Achilles. He's, he doesn't want to be the lure before. The lure, the lure, the lure, the, the fish on the hook. So I think he's quite romantic in that sense and that he's passionate, but he does, you know, he, he has these really, really strong emotions and he finishes off that speech basically by saying nothing is worth my life and that is what you were asking me to give up. Um, so I'm going to go home and, and take my friends with me. And when Patroclus is then dead, his reaction is even more ridiculous and and I'm okay. I've just said ridiculous. He's not ridiculous. It's so... It's over the top. Potentially over the yeah. top, but it is... But it's real. And it's... Mm-hmm. He does all the things that are, as you learn on the GCSE, the things that you do when you're in mourning, um, which actually a woman would do. You would tear your hair. Mm-hmm. You would beat your chest. You'd scratch your face. Everything to show that um, 
you are no longer interested in your appearance and looking nice and because the person who you did it for is gone that's that's a one way of reading it uh, and you and you will make yourself put yourself in physical pain because that is how you feel so there's a, a physical idea of the pain he gnashes his teeth and he's on the floor and he's on his hands and knees yet once he has fed that that ire and killed hector and then needed even more and dragged hector around and then given hector back to his father he seems to go off and fall in love with Polyxena in about five minutes. And that's not in the Iliad, but it seems to be in lots of the stories afterwards. And he he needs something. He's that, this I suppose is what makes me think of him as, as this, this terrifying, passionate, killing, romantic machine. And that he just, he needs something or someone to fill the gap that Patroclus has left that perhaps Briseis may even have a tiny, tiny bit. So the fact that he's so real and exciting as a character like that because he's so emotional, I think actually made me think of him as being actually surprisingly maybe one of the least douchey of the Homeric characters or the heroic characters. A romantic is a, a very apt way of describing him. And I would, I tend to just describe him as a drama queen. And so I think that you're like, <laughs> that's, it's a much more um, academic uh, way I will of go with nuanced. Him as, yeah. Uh, there we, nuanced as works too. Um, yeah. I, he just is so dramatic, but you're right. It's, he's got good reason. Like he's over the top, but it's very real. And it is, his emotions are very understandable, but also like heightened. Yeah. And they're just, they're very exaggerated, realistic. There we go. Very exaggerated, but they're very realistic too. Like Mm. in the writing on the Iliad, you know, he's he's a very three-dimensional character i guess you know like he he you see all sides to him you might not like any one side necessarily (laughs) but he He is terrifying depth he is he's awful but he has so much depth and you really like get a sense of where he's coming from what he's doing and what motivates him i mean and what motivates him is you know his own ego for the most part but you'd see that when you're you know reading about him i see i feel sorry for him now well because he's he's this man with two fates no one has two fates well he he has a choice and you know the, the heraclitus says a man's fate is his character he has been raised by two opposing parents one who wants him to be a killing machine and wants one wants to hide him away and make him um, much less like that and temper him by temper that killing machine um, by leaving him on an island full of women uh, and hiding him as a woman for for a while, in fact, and and so he's got these two very opposing forces, and then he's he's brought to war. He wasn't ever trying to marry Helen. He'd be far too young. He must have got to the war age like fifteen, sixteen, or something. And uh, and and the only reason, uh, the only thing he can do while he's there is fight. And he knows that he will either live this short life full of glory that his dad wants. Or he can jolly well go home and live a long, boring life where he will at least enjoy it, which is what his mother wants. And then he gets to do neither because he's 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 caught in this argument. He sort of trapped himself into it. Agamemnon won't apologize. He won't apologize. He sits in his tent watching everyone dying, not getting any glory, and in fact getting the opposite, the idos of of everyone knowing that he's just sitting there when he could be helping. So I I I. I suppose, yes, drama queen in the way he he responds to that, but he has so much going on. 
<laughs> that I do feel quite sorry for him. I've seen kids like that who've who've been so upset about their grades, they burst into tears and they, you know, their parents are going to be so disappointed. But I've also had ones who were like, um, just they've, they've really, the, one kid I had was really brought up by this really quite brutal father and then his father was away working and then he had this really soft mother and he was just so conflicted, this young boy, about how he was meant to act. And I kind of see a lot of Achilles in him. I think my issue is I need to read the surrounding stories because I, I've really only read the Iliad when it comes to primary sources featuring Achilles mm-hmm. and Song of Achilles. So everything you're saying is very, to me, that I only connect it to the Song of Achilles versus any kind of ancient source. I think um, most of my understanding of, of Achilles is just from the Iliad with just a little bit of um, additional myth uh, that I learned actually from um, using uh, War with Troy, which is another school resource that you can get from um, the, the Cambridge uh, on, online resources. And it's lovely. It's these these two fantastic storytellers retelling the story of, of, of mm. the Iliad, but adding on a bit at the beginning so that kids have a bit more context because the Iliad is only, what, like 50 days in the ninth year of the war. It doesn't have the rest of the context. It doesn't even have the horse, as I love to tell people. Um, I know. But, but it's, it's, he is so well characterized. And I, I know I mentioned a few other things there, but I, I think even before that, his fantastic speech in book nine, which, let's face it, is one of the only times we see a lot of him in the actual Iliad, is just so full of of detail and maybe it was me starting off as an English teacher when you're reading poetry um actually interesting enough um oh I'm gonna forget her name now Emily Dickinson right okay but she wrote this poetry and she uses all these dashes to show her passion and her mind going this way and that which is actually a very Homeric thing to say and the way he, the way the translation I had, at least anyway, had Achilles speaking and there's lots of dashes and he's changing his mind all the time. That immediately tells you he's in a passionate state. He's not thinking mm-hmm. straight. And when I realized that the first time I read it, not as a student, and I was able to sit and really enjoy it. And I, I realized how angry and upset he was. And I started having a bit more of an idea about him as, as a character before I'd even found out anything else, which I think is beautifully done in Song of Achilles, by the way. I think that's one of my favourite classical reception novels that I would absolutely recommend to pupils to read alongside or after reading the Iliad. Maybe not before, but afterwards. Um, uh, Because I think it enhances it so much. It does, and it's so accurate in terms of like the events of the story and the characters and everything. Not necessarily, I mean, obviously like their relationship is romanticized beyond the text but in terms of like the events leading up to the war and everything you really do get a sense yeah of what kind of happened beyond that little that short period that the Iliad actually covers yeah I mean I I guess Achilles I he is just he is very fascinating and I think thinking about him in that way where he is torn between his two fates and his parents and all of these different aspects you really do yeah you get to sympathize with him in a way that I think doesn't necessarily come across without looking into more of him as a person versus just the way he reacts to things but I suppose as well the these epic poems were performed to people who's who knew all these stories Mm -hmm. it is so interesting to think about it that way where they would have known all the characters and you know depending on the time frame 
you also would have had all the others in the epic cycle that they would have been familiar with as well that we don't have. Yes. You know, and so all the different like levels of what the people listening to it then would have known that we don't know or that we only know fragments of or concepts from is always that's the thing I harp on now in like almost every episode of this podcast is just considering what we don't know. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm trying to get my head around the epic cycle and I'm, oh. I, I, I can't even get people to agree on what it actually constituted to begin with, potentially. So that's a that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> it will. Yeah, it's, there seems to be sort of like differing information about what falls under that category of the epic cycle. But just even the fact that there were so many epics. Yeah. But yeah, Achilles, Achilles is fascinating. Now, um, I don't know if we should. I think we should. I think we should rip off the bandage. So Odysseus. So he gets grief. He gets, oh, you stayed on this island with this woman. And then you stayed on this island with this one for seven years. You clearly don't love your life. He gets that. And he gets, you You try and trick Penelope when he, you get home. And it, it, again, just in terms of, of like how you he's threw a baby And then the how he's the, no, yes. But he also saved another baby. Which, Which is another story. Uh, the, the, the child of Antenor, a Trojan, who gave him hospitality. I spent a long time talking about this the other day, about how um, Odysseus seems to have, he, he's become so affected by everything he's gone through that like the only thing that matters is getting home and also hospitality. And if you've ever given him good hospitality, he will he will look after you. Like he, he saves Antenor's child from the Trojan War. And... Yes, he also kills Hector's child, but I, I can kind of see why. Not that I ever think there's a reason to kill children and I would I would end him if he came near my daughter, but he, he he's doing it to prevent further atrocity in the future because the, the pattern of revenge, I mean, if you look at like the Atreides, come on, you can just see that going on and on and on and on and on. Um, so horrible thing to even vaguely say is justified. It's not justified, but I can see why he thought he would do it but well it's also war like i think we have yes to it is a war remember... crime and war crimes happen yeah. in war that definitely yeah is a, is a thing but he didn't want to go to the war let's well, not forget exactly. this no. and uh the, the, the i was making the argument oh, again i'm gonna get shot down so badly for this by everyone who who hates him and says he's no good but i love him so i don't know who you think is gonna come for you well i know you do <laughs> so i'm in a safe space i literally refer to him <laughs> as my main man he is the only hero that I, well, no, I wouldn't say that. But he, like, I legitimately enjoy him. I know he has so much shit, but I just love him. Okay. It, 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 I, I am in the safe space here. You're not going to, you're not going to verbally beat me up for, for suggesting anything. But but the, the idea that he, um, uh, so it's Philoctetes who gets abandoned on the island um, mm. and left for dead. But Philoctetes was the one who um, lit the pyre for Heracles when he was dying of the poison of the shirt of Nessus. Again, I didn't know any of this stuff until I actually started teaching it and had to look it up. And so, you know, Philoctetes would understand what it is. He's, he's got a, a, a venom wound from a snake that it's not going to heal. He should know. He's basically walking dead himself, you know. And, uh, oh, it's the other chap whom... The one whom he has sort of a battle of wits with, like the guy who's maybe slightly, Palamedes, the one who's maybe slightly cleverer than Odysseus, and Odysseus really hates him. But Odysseus had Palamedes come to his home and say he had to go to the war and then see through his disguise of being insane by putting his baby Telemachus in front of the plough. That contravenes Xenia. He's basically endangering his child in his own home 
he has to go. So <laughs> this is this is he, he he in his mind he has justification for these things. And then the whole Odyssey is about hospitality and being a good guest and being a good ghost. Ghost? No, being a good <laughs> guest. Um, well, there are ghosts in the Odyssey, but still, being there a good are. guest and being a good host are two sides of of Xenia. And if you are a good host, but your guest is terrible, then revenge occurs. Like the suitors, they not only eat them out of house and home and overstay their welcome. There's a plot to kill Telemachus, another person trying to kill Telemachus. Oh yeah, they don't know what Xenia is. The Cyclops eats his guests. He's outside Xenia, but. He still gets punished for it. Uh, Paris steals his host's wife and all of his goods that came with the wife. And, you know, the war, um, Trojan War. Uh, so, you know, the, the, I was arguing that this is a really, really important point. But from a female perspective, this idea that he's he just spends all his time making love to these women and not actually getting home to his wife. And would would you be able to, knowing that, if you refused, your wife might be in danger. Not sleep with an all-powerful goddess with the power of life and death over you, potentially. If you were to say, no, I'm not going to sleep with you because my wife is my life and she's prettier than you as well. Would that not endanger your wife's life, given all the other myths about how having that kind of hubris against the gods immediately gets you killed or turned to a pillar of salt or all your children murdered, even if you're stating a fact like, I have more children than Leto. <laughs> see, and see, so this is how I can defend Odysseus is exactly things like that. So I actually had like, I got to a little heated, not actually heated, but like DM back and forth with an account on Twitter who was who was suggesting that Odysseus was one of the worst heroes. And I actually had myself trying to present reasons why obviously Theseus is the worst. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. That's the right reaction. <laughs> this person was not... I don't... I frankly, like, I can't actually wrap my head around people not seeing Theseus as bad because I think... And not to move this under Theseus, but, like, I think that if you hear the things he did, then there is no actual way to excuse them unless you're excusing things like assault. But anyway, the, my point is about Odysseus, which is that most of the things he does, while they might not have been his best option if he'd really thought about it, I can see how oh, why yes. he did it. So, like, yeah, you know, I do think how he married Penelope is slightly problematic. You know, the the recap there of he went to marry Helen or to be one of the suitors but knew he wasn't going to get her anyway so he made the deal to marry Penelope instead and I see now I there are different versions of that story too mm, interesting where he's okay. not a suitor but yeah. he goes anyway because he's only the king of this backwater island he's not a great king really he's just a leader compared to Tyndareus, who is king of Sparta. And um, Penelope is daughter of Icarus, nobleman of Sparta. And so by doing a great favor for Tyndareus, he then gets Tyndareus to speak on his behalf to get Icarus to let Penelope marry Odysseus and go off with him. That's the version that I was taught. And then I found out later, well, he, he went and tried to get Helen, really? And I don't see that in his character at all. Because Penelope seems to have a very different draw for him than um, it being about looks. Um, when he is visiting, well, not visiting, when he gets to Troy, no, sorry, 
Just, oh, I'm tired now. When he gets to Ithaca finally and he's in disguise and he is actually sitting in the palace having a discussion. There's all this dramatic irony. She's going, oh, I've only my husband come back and he's right there. And he's like, be cool, man. And don't let on. But he he compliments her. He says, you are like a king, which is the biggest compliment he can give her, basically saying that she has ruled the land in her husband's absence. Because um, I don't think queens did that at that point. So that wouldn't have been so much of a compliment. Um, and he has such respect for her and he sits and he listens and he seems to hate actually lying to her at this point, but he has to keep it up um, so that everything is perfect. When he finally reveals himself, all the blood's off the floor and every, everyone who's bad is dead and it can be perfect like it was before. And then she gets her own back on him a bit by testing him with the whole bed tree scenario i am assuming everyone's listened to this because they've, they've listened to to your bits of the podcast um on this um which i think actually is more about showing how good they are for each other and um someone was saying yep yeah, like he's so bad he doesn't even go and visit his dad first yeah he visits penelope first he has to get that situation sorted and then he can go off and see his father. And the whole sleeping with, with these goddesses, the, the, the first one, okay, he definitely stays too long. He stays for a year. But you can't sail all year round. Yeah. I would and, argue. I mean, she's a sorceress. Yes. And badass, let's be honest. She is I amazing. do love Cersei. Yeah. I could justify everything he does, basically. But Cersei definitely, like, had enough over him that I can see why he stayed with her for that first night. I mean, it's a hilarious scene where it's literally just like, well, if you have sex with me, I'll transform your men back into men from pigs. In fact, she actually says, come and lie with me. And he says, no, not until you have changed them back. True, into right, men. exactly. So he's being smart about that. And then, of course, you know, he has to just do that. And I also think, like, you know, the, the idea of faithfulness was probably not like the most connected to our modern understanding of it yeah you know this is something i started thinking about when i was writing these these <laughs> attempts at notes um you you don't hear about odysseus having bed slaves at troy but you hear about all the other Everyone heroes else's. having yeah. them or maybe not men and actually i don't think that's mentioned but obviously you get here men you hear about you hear about achilles you hear about patroclus you hear about um uh, agamemnon and you can probably assume about a lot of the rest of them, because there are an awful lot of enslaved women being passed about. It seems to, they, they say we've divvied up all the women from all of our um, exploits around the area. You know, there are no one left. Um, but you don't hear that Odysseus has one. So maybe, maybe it is assumed mm -hmm. that he also has one, but you certainly don't hear it about it to, to be honest you don't hear enough about the enslaved women full stop no of course um yeah. but i don't know i'm trying to think now in the trojan women did any of them in in Euripides say that they were odysseus's slave hmm. mm. I, yeah i don't know it well enough it's no I, i'm honestly not sure either but i don't think no. it's not stuck in my memory that it has i might need to reread that but then when he's with Calypso, there is absolutely no way off this island. He is yeah. washed up on the shore. He has no way of getting back. And when you finally meet him, he's a broken shell of a man sitting on the shore crying and wanting to go home. And there are phrases like, you know, passionate woman, cold lover. That he, the, the, the nymph long had ceased to please, um, which is very, well, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit male that. Um, but it, it, it may be... You know, he's been there seven years. He's kind of become a prisoner of of her lust. She offers him marriage 
and everlasting life. And amazingly, he has turned that down. And when you think about what Achilles was crying about, he wanted his name to live forever because he knew he would die and that would be the only bit of him that could be immortal. Um, Odysseus is turning down actual immortality to be able to go home. And that's a that's a massive deal. It's almost like she started keeping him there out of spite, especially then when Hermes comes and tells her that she has to give him up. And she has that fabulous rant. I love that. We, we spend a lot it's of time looking at that. Good. It's quite sort of early feminist, you know, you men, it was all about double standards and you, you male gods can do whatever you like, but when a female has a lover, you ruin it and it's unfair. And she's absolutely right. But at the same time, she's kind of using that as as an excuse to keep Odysseus as kind of her pet. And he clearly doesn't want to be there. And she can see that, but she forces him to stay anyway. And then when she says, fine, you can go. And she even's like, friend, why are you crying? Off you go. And he's like, what? And he, then he, for the rest of the, 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 the story, he seems to be completely lost. He doesn't know who to trust anymore. It's like she's gaslighted his entire experience. The, suddenly off you go like like nothing's happened like they've been friends this whole time and she hasn't been keeping him there and so then when he's like in the middle of the of the water and he's about to drown and i know lucathoe the white goddess turns up as this big seabird says here take my veil it will save you he's like should i shouldn't i and you're like wow you should but the fact that you're questioning this shows that you are very damaged and maybe rightly so. Maybe you deserve a bit of this. But um, I kind of see Calypso's enforced sexual slavery as kind of like, you really shouldn't have had so much fun with Circe, maybe. And it's a it's a bit of a punishment. But I certainly don't see it as him hanging out with her for seven years voluntarily. No, I don't think so either. I think it's pretty clear that he's not there by choice. And he's stuck there. And she's a nymph. And she has power over him. Like, you know... That's the thing I think between that and I do I do think that he stayed with Cersei for a while willingly mm. but I also think I, I think that that probably doesn't necessarily mean that he's a bad guy like I just you know like I think it's pretty early on in the Odyssey and he's just trying to kind of find his way and they start out together in him trying to save his men from being pigs and then I think he kind of gets comfortable and mm. I don't really blame him for getting comfortable for a little while in amidst like after 10 years of that horrible war that was so messy and then all the trials to get to Cersei like hang out for a little bit enjoy yourself <laughs> like maybe you know just pretend like the rest of the world doesn't exist for a little while and I'm sure his men were probably quite in enjoying their time too because one thing is never mentioned is how many slave women enslaved women mm -hmm. were on those ships too and they're not just on mm -hmm. the ship while these guys are chilling out in Cersei's palace they are being used very likely mm -hmm. so they're they're probably well, quite happy too the men not and the Cersei women has really. no god and I think Cersei has a lot of like nymphs on her island yeah. and stuff too right so they might have been having some consensual fun as well I like to think at least mm -hmm. a little but I don't see the argument for him being that bad. Like, I do think he's problematic. And I do think it's really gross the ways he goes about hiding who he is when he does finally get back to Ithaca. Like, I, th I understand his purpose, but I think he goes on about it like a little bit much. He just has a little too much fun with it. He just, he, he can't stop anymore. No. It, like, the stories he makes up are, like, 
dude, no one. It's like it's like it's just can, so easy so, to lie. That's quite worrying for him yeah, to be able exactly. to just come up with a story like this epic Cretan history. Know, guys probably never even big to, been oh, to Crete, man. and here he can tell you all about this fake person that he's come up with who he is from Crete and his whole sob story. So I do think like, I think he's a narcissist, but I don't think that necessarily makes him a a bad guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I haven't thought about him as a narcissist, but actually that works really well with this, with this idea of him. Um, I think it does. I'm not an expert on psychology, but. Yeah, I know neither. I'm like, (laughs) this is real base level use of the word narcissist. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. 
We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When, when the heroes say, I am so-and-so and my fate has reached the heavens, they are factually speaking correct. But it does sound like a massive, massive brag. They, they're not humble braggers, really, are they? No, no. they? I am straight up amazing. Be impressed. Because um, the gods know my name. But, you know, in a way, that's kind of true. Well, they think it's true. Then we have to discuss whether the gods are just, to, you know, there for to make people feel better or make them feel worse. And anyway, that's a whole nother discussion. And we could talk about Aeneas because he's the third in the trilogy, sort of. Most of the memes about the Aeneid are about it being a copy of Homer and not as good. Fan fiction. And that really, really annoys me because if Virgil was writing now, he'd be so lauded for having made this really fantastic um, subplot about another character and it's and it's not so nice about the Greeks anymore and oh it's a bit more it's a bit gritty realism and there are some nods to Homeric style and you know that you will get have you read them and people would think it was great that's so true okay I haven't in my own lesson said yeah he's straight up taken this simile Hermes flying over the waves like a seabird is from the Odyssey book five and that my favorite bit where he and, and Odysseus kills a stag I think it's on Circe's island and he kills a stag and he feeds it to his men and it's, it goes on about what a monstrously huge stag this is. Wow, he's, he's so great to carry the stag. It's so big. Yeah, he carries it around his neck. Yeah. But Aeneas, <laughs> seven stags. <laughs> Take that, Homer, says Virgil. Seven stags. Well, probably Akati's carried one, like, because he's always there. But, you know, to, I think all as well, just like you were saying, to, to add colour to poor old Aeneas. Uh, two of my classes were during Game of Thrones' very long structure, and they decided that he was Jon Snow, <laughs> and that he was boring and didn't really do anything, but was a very important character and was very nice and would probably win in the end. That's <laughs> so accurate. <laughs> so, Except for that last season of Game of Thrones. We can forget that one. Aeneas is so fascinating because of his origins and then the Aeneid. Somebody tweeted at me recently and they were like, don't you think that there needs to be like a, a transitional chapter between the Odyssey and the Aeneid? And I I just jokingly replied like, yeah, it's just that there's like a thousand years in between. So it's so like they, they feel like they should fit. But then you think about them like historically, chronologically. And- yeah. I mean, there's even little things like it's all about the bronze weapons in the Odyssey and the Iliad. And then suddenly it's talking about um, iron and steel. And so mm. it's a big jump there. I would have never noticed that. Yeah. Teacher voice. Notice these yeah. details that show you the anachronism. And <laughs> some of his similes are, are not quite as good as Homer's similes. Like, I'm, I'm being a bit mean there, but there are, there are some similes that are, that are they're, they're less than exciting. Well, and the, he doesn't have the same... The way that Homer will tell you this whole 
epic side story as a way to say that like the horses ran along the sand you know or it'll be like the horse this is not remotely from it but you know like that and as blah 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 so did this person do that hey man i i love my similes i won't having anything said against them <laughs> no i love them what i mean is that homers are long descriptive mm. half the time they tell you a whole other myth in the simile and then virgil just he doesn't have that and i get it too he's squishing a lot more into a shorter period and he's got a different purpose but. also though yeah the purpose originally the odyssey and the iliad were recited and your audience is in front of you and you've got to keep them going and you've got to keep them imagining everything and that's why you use similes that have got all of this detail mm -hmm. and why you use invocations to the muse as well it's like shut up everyone the curtain's opening oh muse sink why is starting but uh, Virgil doesn't need to do that because he is writing it. He still keeps mm -hmm. these in, though, as an homage. He doesn't need to. And that's fascinating. He still keeps a lot of the formulaic phrases and the, the similes, but he doesn't need them to be so evocative. And now we're not discussing Aeneas, we're discussing Virgil. But there we go. This is the thing. Aeneas, it, it's just not about Aeneas. No, Aeneas <laughs> is Virgil. Like, yeah, you, it's, you can discuss Aeneas in the you know homeric sources and then you're discussing aeneas and there's not a ton to say mm. but if you're discussing aeneas in the aeneid you're discussing virgil because it, it was just like a series of choices and it was all about why he was writing and that he was writing that he was forming a narrative mm. all, like in the written word versus a homeric bard who was just telling a story to whoever was around and he needed to remember it and they needed to be entertained and so mm. that was the purpose to all of it yeah so i think it's nearly impossible to talk about aeneas if you're talking about him in the aeneid without diving into all of yeah. that but at the same time aeneas in the iliad is fascinating for his own kind of ways which is just that like he does seem like he's ready to be this really important character like i think it really suits that he then goes on to found Rome, you know, because it, as far as Iliad characters go, he's quite interesting. You know, we have this this guy who's one of the only well, no, I shouldn't say that, but he's you know, he is a son of a goddess. I was going to say one of the only ones, but there's quite a few sons of gods. <laughs> in the Iliad. Well, no, you're probably right in that he's son of a goddess, which a goddess isn't and somebody like common. Aphrodite. No. Yeah. And he he's very linked to Achilles in that way. Like there I can't think of another who is the child of a goddess other than Achilles and Aeneas. No, I can't not off the top of my head actually. Not not yeah. in that um in that frame. In the Iliad, yeah, in, in those characters at least. You know, there's a lot of sons of Zeus. There's son of Heracles. Mm. But yeah, being the son of Aphrodite is very big. Mm. And then having her save him oh, on the God, battlefield, yeah. right? Like, that's huge I'm in terms to of storyline. Does it happen? It's after she's done that for Paris, right? I suddenly can't remember. It must be because yeah. that's quite book three. So, yeah, because otherwise I would have thought it's like setting that up, but it's not really. But it's like she has no. form for doing it anyway. And she, it's that weird thing because that's unexplainable in any other way. It's divine intervention, not just inspiration, but actual in the, which they never get right in films or that god awful fall of Troy. Arr. 
never do that. But it is no other way of explaining it. And it's magical, that moment, when it's done right, anyway, um, where she swoops in and saves her favorite. And she gets injured doing it, which I think is also a key point. Because... Mm. Like she, as a goddess, yeah, she actually, like, she is cut, she bleeds, like, this is one of the few references to actual Ikor. Yeah, it's Ikor. Yeah, like, it's one of those things, I think it is so unique, and it's so interesting that Mm -hmm. it's Aeneas, because, like, I wonder if, if it would stand out so much if he hadn't gone on to be Aeneas for Rome. I think it would, like, I think, because there isn't another character who gets the like Paris has divine intervention, but it's not the same. It's very much like you're a sad loser. Like we're going to help you. Whereas Aeneas, it's like, no, you're worthy. You're my favorite. I have to save you. Like it's a very different level of intervention on his part. It's very much like about him being impressive and being important and being her son. Exactly. So almost like her property. And he's, it's interesting as well because the gods can't change fate. I mean, there's the whole thing with um, Sarpedon and he's going to die and mm. Zeus can't do anything about that despite being his actual father. And uh, he he sheds blood rain on the battlefield. But then, so so that suggests that he wasn't actually going to die at by, by Adelmedes' hand. Um or she wouldn't have been able to save him. But he's we know that his fate is to go off and to found not actually Rome, but like he's yeah, he's not even the founder of Rome. He's the no. founder of, <laughs> of Lavinium, which founds Alba Longa, which founds Rome. She saves him. She knows he's not gonna die, but she can't help it. It's such a motherly thing to do. She just mm-hmm. swoops in and grabs her child. Well, you're right, it's not like that for Paris at all. It's like, oh no, know. my sex toy, I must grab him and save him. And now go play. Um, oh, well, I just ruin everything. Um uh, <laughs> and that that's super weird too, because you think that really Paris was destined to die at that moment. He really was about to die. So then that calls into question fate and it's so difficult to discuss. And you know what? What is interesting is you can discuss him without going off topic when you look at him from the, the point of view of the, the female characters. Because mm-hmm. that's actually where he does get a lot of criticism. And I, I still think he's really not that bad. So he loses Creusa in the war. And y- you, you are rolling. Yeah, okay. See, okay. He has Or his... forgets about no! her completely. Okay. She is not mentioned until book two. You don't even know that he had a wife until book two. Yeah, but book one opens. Um, oh God, how does it open? It's been a while. He's since frantically, this. frantically. Oh, he's getting like, to Dido's, of course. Well, you, you, he's he's literally about to die in a storm at the beginning, right? And then they end up on the Phoenician coast. And in that case. When he's talking about the fall of true in book two, he talks about his wife. So technically, it's the first thing that he talks about. We know we get a whole scene of him tr- like going through the fiery ruins of Troy without hearing about his wife. Oh yeah, because that's exciting. But without she's asked about Troy though. But we hear about his son and his father extensively. She gets to come back as a ghost. I have, it's been a year since I've read it. But the, the <laughs> reason I remember this part so strongly is that so I had not read the Aeneid before covering it in the podcast. Oh, strong move. Yes. <laughs> well, that's what I do because I don't have time to read something ahead of time, mm. let alone an epic. 
And also I have zero attention span and zero ability to focus on anything. <laughs> so I didn't, I hadn't read the Aeneid until I was covering it for the podcast. I got away with not reading it in school by just straight up like, I don't even know. I, I still did well in a course and just managed to not read the Aeneid when we were supposed to. But we, uh, I, I was covering it. And so I did this whole first episode all about Aeneas and his son and his father and getting out of Troy. And then the second episode, I I suddenly discovered he had a wife. And so, like, I didn't know for the f- whole first wow. episode of the podcast because I hadn't read ahead at all. And I only knew about Dido because she's the famous one. Yes. And so I, I, I remember starting, like, the second episode of the podcast where I was like, guess what, guys? He had a wife this whole time. <laughs> Like, what that. an asshole. How could we not know this? And so it stood out so much to me for that reason alone of like, it, it was kind of perfect for the show. It was very fun in a way where I was, you know, I think it emphasized how shocking it is because I didn't know in starting out the whole podcast about him. And I think I did like a, a an early episode to introduce him as a character and remind people of him from the Iliad before diving into the Aeneid and then have it be like suddenly like, oh, oh. I guess Creusa. And so I think the episode, I even titled it like, turns out Achilles had a wife and, or, or not Aeneas. Achilles, Aeneas <laughs> had a wife. And I just found it, it, it definitely came across as shocking. Oh, that when is I read interesting. Because I, I, he and Dido both bond over this idea that they've lost their their partner. But I, I thought the way that he loses Creusa is really understandable in that he's he's holding on to his tiny child's hand. Um, he's carrying his aged father, who they've had to persuade to leave the house in the first place. He's like, I'm going to die here and go down with the ship. And then he's like, five seconds later, oh, a sign. Okay, fine, we'll go. And she's got him over the shoulder. He's like, my wife is capable. She will be right next to me. He doesn't have to hold on to her because he knows she'll follow him. And then Virgil writes her out because she has to die. What he doesn't do is make her suffer. We don't have any mm. horrible death scene, which can be gone back to. It's not gratuitous and grotesque. And in fact, instead, we have this lovely scene where he goes back for her. Why does everyone forget this? He runs right back into the throat. He's got all of these people waiting on him to lead them and his son and his father. He goes back to find her. He can't find her. And instead, she he's allowed to meet her ghost. There's so many more ghosts um, uh, in the Aeneid because the Romans are really superstitious and believe that ghosts mm. have unfinished business and come back. And they do. And she's able to say to him to not be, not feel bad about this because he has a new destiny now. And, you know, you will still remember me. And it's and he cries and then he leaves because he has to because she's told him to. And I think that's beautiful. It, it, it's it. You're convincing. Me. I am because as well. And this is the thing. Aeneas is entirely a construction because there are so few stories it seems about him that have lasted into it. He he's Virgil's pawn. And like you were saying, the purpose of the Aeneid is so different to what the purpose of the Odyssey mm-hmm. and the Iliad are. And that uh, poor old Aeneas, okay, there's this great series of of books by a guy called Jasper Ford um, about Thursday Next Literary Detective. And it's in this world where the characters of books are alive and come out and you can go into the books Mm. and visit them. And I I was talking about this because there's this great bit where like all the characters in in, um, Wuthering Heights are at the I Hate Heathcliff recovery meeting. And then he swans in and he's like, I can't help it. And, you know, to, to quote Jessica Rabbit, I'm not bad. I'm just drawn this way. He can't help what he does because Virgil made him do it. 
and this comes to Dido as well, right? Mm -hmm. Dido is there seemingly to add some sexy pizzazz, which as we can see from every modern adaptation of anything, Roman sex is very much on the menu at all times, right? So there's sexy caveness and there's orgies. Uh, trying to explain the word orgy to a class of 12-year-olds is great fun. I, I spoiled it for them terribly by saying an orgy is just lots of the something that you like. You can have an orgy of chocolate. You could even have an orgy of homework. And I think the words orgy of homework have just ruined that entirely for them. They don't find that funny anymore. <laughs> but th this idea that, that they do this, and, and it's a bit like what we were saying about Odysseus, like relax a bit, man. <laughs> Odysseus, you have a wife, go back to her. But Aeneas, you don't anymore because Virgil wrote her out. You're allowed to relax a bit. And it's consensual. But it's it's difficult because Dido, for us especially now, looking at her, she's this fabulous character who has so much more agency than many, many other female characters. She's mm -hmm. an actual queen where that means something other than wife of the king. And she lets it slip. And she lets Aeneas, and he's literally being the king, and he's even like wearing the, the cloak that she's made for him. And um, yeah, just, oh... Uh, Llewellyn Morgan has these really cool things to say about the the, the cape and, and, and rather the cloak of Aeneas and, and what that represents. Um, and th this idea that it slips and it's like he's he's literally let what his true destiny is slip. And um, and then he has to go. And then, that, oh, that horrific. It, it's it's I have to leave and not looking her in the eye. And she's just so angry. And he definitely doesn't deal with that in a particularly good way. He and it, like not. he's like right we have to go so secretly make preparation bad idea she finds out and so she's obviously really really upset but i think she's more upset with herself because of yeah. the fact that she's let him do this but she knew that he needed to go somewhere and set up a place of, of his own and she allowed that to happen and she allowed herself to fall for him and then she allowed her sister to talk her into it and he doesn't expect her to kill herself but he 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 can't possibly understand what she has lost by giving him herself and i think that's why in the underworld then um again another up yours homer virgil uh virgil allows his character to go into the underworld whereas odysseus only got to stand outside <laughs> so he goes in and he sees her and she blanks him and then goes off with with her husband sakaias which i think is wonderful she he doesn't get to have the apology, you know, for her killing I do herself. Like that. She he just gets to be in pain about it, reveal how upset he truly is, and then not get closure, which is great. So I think that actually humanizes him for me a lot more than him just being this this perfect guy who's just in difficult circumstances. And then he gets to fight for Lavinia and it's practically like medieval courtship. She doesn't say anything. She just blushes. There. Yeah, she's never there. Oh no, don't talk to Lavinia. She'll just blush. <laughs> and he has to marry her because then he wins and that and that's it. The fact that, spoilers, the Aeneid ends with just Turnus dying because that's like the last hurdle and everything can now go ahead and Lavinia will be married and they will have the child who found Alba Longa and so forth. It's, yeah, it's very telling that like, right, we've got, we finally got to the bit where Rome can happen. Right. We don't even need to end with, with an Aeneas at all. <laughs> but it's also Homer. By doing that, 
Virgil is emphasizing once more how the Aeneid is like the Iliad. Oh, yeah, entirely. Well, half Odyssey, yeah. half Iliad. Yeah. Yeah, but that end. Yeah. The end is like the Iliad. Oh, well, completely. Like, I think yeah. I had to translate that bit for my Latin GCSE. So I have that etched permanently in my head because I had to learn it off my heart because I was actually terrible at Latin. <laughs> Somebody who only took first year and then gave it up. I get it. I just thought that was really funny. We finished talking about Aeneas and immediately moved on because, again, there's just not much to say. So There isn't... But I, I think we've said a lot about Aeneas. We, yeah. I think that's... I mean, you've sold me on him a little bit more. I still think he's obnoxious. I but I actually... <laughs> I I enjoyed even just remembering him from the Iliad because I think, I think he gets lost from the Iliad because of how important he is to the Aeneid. Yeah. That I often forget how interesting he is in the Iliad. Not necessarily important. He's definitely important, but he's really interesting because he's a very unique character. Like I'm almost wondering what Homer or whoever, you know, the idea of Homer, what they had in mind with Aeneas because he does seem like he's destined for something. Like it makes so much sense that he would go on to found something like Rome yeah. because he's destined for something great with Aphrodite saving him like that and everything. I feel there's so much. Remember the, okay, in the film Troy, which we haven't managed to mention, which I don't entirely hate because I can understand if you're making a film and your audience is not just classicists and you have to actually like make it appeal to other people you might make some difficult choices with the plot although killing menelaus what were you thinking Can, yeah oh Can, my god killing menelaus but is absurd I, I i i have only watched the director's cut which is three hours long and makes a lot more sense but i don't I know I, do, I, don't, I don't it's really good no, okay it's not really good but like it's no it's but better. i get it yeah it's better. i don't hate the movie i like no. it for what it is which is that there are not enough movies set in mythological Greece at all yes. and most of them are even garbagier than Troy so oh my god so much more I, yeah like I like Troy because it's not Clash of the Titans uh, but <laughs> it, I don't know if it is in the normal cut of Troy where right at the end right the Trojans are getting out through the back door which they did have like the Sally Port gates in the Cyclopean walls of other palaces so maybe they had that at Troy and I, I think because Paris somehow is alive and gets away. And I think he stops this boy and says, boy, what's your name? And the boy goes, Aeneas. And he goes, here, take the sword of Troy. <laughs> You're like, were you trying to make a sequel? Or, or just what? Because that is lame in the extreme. And it's just, he's this young kid with his father. There's no kid. There's no creuser in that version. I mean, if they wanted to make no. a sequel, they had Sean Bean as Odysseus. Where is that movie? Don't even get me started. That would be a perfect film. They even brought in his dog, right? Yep. That would have been so perfect. Odysseus as Sean Bean, or Sean Bean as Odysseus, to me, they are like, they are perfect. Yeah, I that mean, works. I love so Sean I Bean. Definitely but, get on with that. But you know he's flawed yes. because you've seen him as Boromir. Oh, yeah. Because Sean Bean is amazing. <laughs> yes, this is very true. So in terms of ranking these dudes then, I know we had already agreed that no one is worse than Theseus mm -hmm. because, I mean, it took me a while to cotton on to this because I didn't know as much about Theseus, him not having an epic, which says a lot, frankly, mm -hmm. but the stories mm -hmm. of him and, and I, I, yeah, the, the fact that I do like the way you pointed out that his, his, his great, his, his great, um, Herculean efforts are just some guys who are bandit leaders. I mean, 
I think I really if get that. now that I've played Assassin's Creed Odyssey and killed a lot of bandit leaders, none of whom have <laughs> names. I think I understand that even more. I mean, he's desperately trying to make a story around himself by walking to Athens and having adventures, possibly, but it doesn't work so well. And but then. I mean, it's, it's, it's that, but then it's also the bit where he accidentally forgets to change the sail. So, I mean, he has no love for his father. This man abandoned him when he was a fetus and mm-hmm. is clearly, I mean, just to be honest, I, I kind of wish Medea had banished to poison him. It would have been a much more interesting story. But, oh, I mean, so many things then. As soon as he has power, he abuses it so badly. And I mean, I'm, you've already done episodes on that. So we, we know Theseus is just a Roman. Well, the thing I want to emphasize, because I don't know if you've listened to my redo of Theseus, which are so much I think much those better. were the ones I, I saw that you did a review. So I went straight to those instead. Good. <laughs> I love those episodes. But primarily because my theory is not only are his Herculean efforts just like some dudes along a road but also, it seems awfully coincidental to suggest that there just happened to be like six of the world's worst, most creative and ridiculous bandits <laughs> on the walk from Trozen to Athens. It just Aww. seems awfully coincidental. And so not only are those not impressive efforts, but I stand by that Theseus was actually a serial killer who just <laughs> killed a bunch of people, came up with these stories about them so that when he got to Athens, he had all this heroic shit to talk himself up because, I mean, he'd done basically nothing. He'd killed some dudes. And then, you know, to try to prove himself even more, he went to capture the Marathonian bull. But even that he didn't even do anything heroic with it. Like he caught the bull, but then he paraded it alive through Athens before sacrificing it so that he could really show off. Like he was all about looking like a hero in every imaginable way versus doing anything heroic. He killed more. Like I feel very strongly with Theseus. You're getting so angry. This is awesome. He almost exclusively killed humans in a way that no other hero did. Like he killed the Minotaur and the Marathonian Bull and no other, I don't think, famous monsters or creatures of any kind. It was all people. And then he spent his time kidnapping women, including like 11-year-old Helen. Mm. And then <laughs> going to the underworld to try to kidnap Persephone. <laughs> and I always see that Ariadne. as a drunken, oh, oh, let's go, let's go to the underworld. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and so I mean, between that and abandoning Ariadne on an island after promising her, a oh my life. god, I'd even forgotten about that's the most obvious one. For first yep. of all, that was the first one I learned. Like, there's there's a red flag, right? And then he married her sister. Oh my god! And and then he also kidnapped and imprisoned an Amazon. And allowed Athens to go to war with the Amazons just because he wouldn't give her up. And, oh, and one of the so-called bandits he killed, he also raped and impregnated his daughter. So I just, Mm. the list of victims of Theseus (laughs) goes on for miles between the women and then the human beings he killed, whereas most other heroes are killing monsters as they're supposed to less so the epic heroes i suppose but if you're talking about heroes that aren't from homer 
they're killing monsters. I and mean, that just seems more more of. I mean, the the the, the Homeric ones are killing people in a war situation where it's basically exactly, legal it's murder. Yeah. So it's yeah. Mm-hmm. So in terms of okay, so we know he's a douche and he's the king of douches. Um, yep. uh, he's too good. No, in fact, the word douche is too good for him. So, but in terms Monster. of if we are if we are hero bashing here, Odysseus and Achilles and Aeneas, who's the worst can can there even be a worst are they all just like on a similar level yeah i think it's that with the epic heroes i think that there can't be like i don't i think that the epic heroes kind of stand alone i the others tend to have much more reasoning behind it like if we're going heroes broadly i would argue theseus is the obvious worst then jason is next because he is shitty but also benign in an even shittier way and just like varied things about him and so but the but the heroes like you know Aeneas and Achilles and Odysseus they've got their issues and but they all have such different things and such different stories and details and everything that yeah I don't I don't see the I don't see them needing a ranking system they've all got their flaws and their good bits and obviously I would put Odysseus at the top if I was going to rank them anyway <laughs> for having flaws for everything he's, great. <laughs> he's not perfect and yet I love him okay so let's rank them in terms of who's the least perfect that's the thing between Achilles and Aeneas I mean I guess I would say Aeneas but mostly because of the Aeneid and not so because of Aeneas is he not too perfect which makes him the least perfect yeah and again because of the aeneid because he's obnoxiously perfect because of the background behind the writing of the aeneid less so than him as a character (laughs) because it's so hard to it's so impossible to look beyond the aeneid right it's just i think it's impossible because of everything associated with it like it's just not the same type of work when it comes to analyzing the characters Mm. because there was a uh, ulterior motive I think you'd I do know. well in my class <laughs> <laughs> so I, I should actually just 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 point out as an extra fun thing in the GCSE you read Livy who's oh no wait no Plutarch did lives of the heroes sorry you read you read mm-hmm. Plutarch and he you read the parts where he's comparing Romulus and Theseus, <laughs> and the entire the the entire thing is basically who was worse, who did it worse, Romulus Does or Theseus? Theseus, Theseus is the worst. Yeah, it, it, between him well, and Romulus, he comes out so badly, and it is mostly there is just a list of women he wrongs. <laughs> So that's yeah. that's a great resource, and that's actually one of the questions of the GCSE. That's amazing. <laughs> Write an essay about which was worse. Oh my god, I would do so well. I mean, <laughs> think you would. That's incredible. So I've read a lot of the Plutarch's Life of Theseus in my episodes on him, and because I love to hate him, as you could see yes. earlier and hear in every <laughs> single thing that I say, like I find it fascinate i find him fascinating because of the way you can compare him to other greek heroes and the way that he just does not seem to qualify and yet here he is being theseus and i I just think that's so fascinating what is the point of theseus in these myths like that's it it is just that isn't it 
Yeah, the only thing that makes him a hero is that Athens has him as their founder, and so they decided that no matter all of the absolute horror that he committed, and nothing heroic, (laughs) that he gets to be this hero amongst heroes who legitimately did something. And we know about him in such an interesting way where, like, I mean, I I don't think that I, I I don't I'm not learning about this now from anyone that's not my own brain. So I don't know if people talk about Theseus as a, a traditional hero, but I can't imagine the defense of that. Whereas there are so many heroes that don't get talked about at all, like Bellerophon. Mm, I find yeah. so fascinating and no one ever talks about him. Pegasus gets written by like everyone except Bellerophon in all pop culture, which is horrifying. The poor guy. <laughs> That's such a good point. Oh, yeah. it it, The poor guy is the only person to have actually ridden Pegasus in a myth. (laughs) And then he, like, Heracles rides him and Perseus constantly. Yeah, it's messy. And then Cadmus. I stand by Cadmus is one of the greatest heroes Mm. because there's no stories of him doing anything bad, as far as I know. He's just like... A nice guy who goes looking for his sister, and when he finds out he's never going to find her because of Zeus, you know, he follows the nice instructions, he founds a nice city, he marries a nice goddess, and then they're cursed and all their kids have problems, but they don't, and I love them. (laughs) Yeah. No, you're right. There are lots and lots of characters that they just aren't as popular. Is it down to the salaciousness of the myth with him? Or is it really down to Athens trying to perpetuate this idea that they are the best and they are, I mean, there's another whole section on the GCC where you're, you're looking at artwork on uh, Greek temples and you, Mm -hmm. it is, it is all, it's nearly always the Centauromachy on the Metopes Mm -hmm. them fighting the Centaurs and this idea that Athenians are conquering, um, for want of a better word, uncivilized uh, Mm -hmm. monsters who do all the bad things. And they continually putting this everywhere just to remind everyone that they're the best and they're the most civilized. And yet they're just people like everyone else and they are not perfect at all, as you see from their history. Um, but they certainly have this myth about themselves. And Thesis seems to become a really, really big, important part of this myth. So much so that the, the most exciting parts of his myth are the bits that make him look the most heroic, him going to fight the Minotaur, him um, uh, coming back and being really sad that his dad's dead and everything. Um, not really oh, and uh, and the whole like sword in the stone kind of thing but it's a sandal and a, and a sword instead that he happens to be able to lift <laughs> yeah and part of the idea as well of, of cynicism and that he he um he starts to unite the the tribes around but that only makes athens even better again so is this is mm-hmm. because of athenian dominance and, and is that it <laughs> wow that's fun yeah I honestly, I think Theseus is one of their greatest bits of propaganda in a similar way to Aeneas. Like, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I'm arguing that Virgil was making propaganda, but regardless, like Aeneas. That's another essay question, to be honest. How far is it propaganda? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's it's an argument to be made one way or the other. But regardless, like, whether it's propaganda in the more traditional sense or not, Aeneas as a character is, like, base level propaganda to just suggest the greatness of Rome Mm. in a way that Theseus is that for Athens. And, you know, it's similar to like the war with the centaurs, like you're mentioning, but then the Amazons too, which is a little bit less about like uncivilized and more about them conquering this great warrior tribe, Mm. because that's also what's depicted all over Athens or was. And so 
you know, I think they were just so obsessed with with being like the best. I I'd love the idea if like um if it was if it was modern times and thesis is their hero and then all his backstory, his horrible backstory starts coming out and it's like on Twitter and he's like, No, it's fake news. I just love this idea that he would be this this guy going, That's absolutely false. I've never imprisoned anyone in my life and you can check with my mother. <laughs> <laughs> but thank you so much for doing this. Oh, and thank um, you. And it's been lovely to chat. And yes, um, you too. I can't believe it's chatted for so long. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I did say this would happen. I'm terrible. It's been very fun. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. I I mean, I always say it. I love these conversation episodes so much. I love that some of them can be this like deep intellectual academic chat where we learn literally everything imaginable about a character, things that you've never considered in your whole life. And that others can be more like this fun, rambly talk about the heroes we know so well, but you just get a different insight when speaking with other people, specifically Laura, who teaches this to secondary students. She has all of these very different insights than I do because of the way she comes at it, let alone the fact that she has created these unbelievable comic strips retelling these epics, let alone everything else that she does. So it was really fascinating to get sort of that side of it, to just have this really casual and freewheeling conversation about these heroes because why not there's so much to them that it's just adds to the fun of every episode just to chat about heroes and all of their nonsense and obviously how much i love odysseus because i love my problematic hero uh, thank you all so much for listening as always could not do it without you um you are all the absolute best i am live and i love this shit Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. 
oldest girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature. And of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.